folks, it's Audrey, your host, and welcome back to episode seven of Why We Do the Work. As always, here's a trigger warning for you here because this podcast is about cancer and it's about childhood cancer and industrial pollution. So take care of yourself there. If you're triggered by cancer, this is your warning. Before we get going, I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. I think it's really awesome that you all have decided to jump into my dreams and allowed a dream to come true here. So yeah, thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. It helps get the word out there about cancer and industrial pollution, and I just really appreciate you all for that. Today, I am joined by someone who has become one of my favorite people, whether he knows that or not. His name is Mason, and Mason, could you pronounce your last name for me? Because I'm always saying, Mason, leave it. (laughs) It's Levitt. (laughs) Okay, Mason Levitt is here, but maybe sometimes I'll say leave it. So Mason is here with us today, and we are going to talk about some of the work that he does with Beyond Toxics and how that sort of meshes with mine, because our intersections do meet at some spaces, even though we work on separate things. Mason is a beautiful at making maps, so I want you to introduce yourself. Well, before I go on, before I go on to that, Mason, this is just for you. Um, I appreciate you reaching out to me and wanting to be on this podcast. I think we're going to have a great time and have a lot of laughs. Maybe not too much because we're in a library, but we're, we'll keep our laughs like quiet. But I just want to say that I was really excited when you joined the team, the team because I like the energy that you bring to it. And so I'm really excited that you're going to bring some of that energy to the podcast today. So folks, here's Mason. Mason, introduce yourself. Hey, Audrey. Thank you so much for having me. Part of the reason I was so excited to do this podcast is because of your beautiful energy and the vibes that we have. And whenever I do end up in a meeting with Audrey, it's just always a plus. Um, even if we're working on slightly different things, it's it's good collaboration and good energy. Oh, I absolutely love that, Mason. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it because I do have a little special place for you in my heart. And I'm always talking about you, too. I talk about all of you guys all the time to my family. All good things. All good things. So who is Mason? As I was looking around, you know, last time when I was with Rebka and Taryn, I Googled them. I found all sorts of things on Aaron. I mean, on Taryn, not so much on Rebka, but I did find some things. You are, however, impossible. So I had to take some little things off of your bio on Beyond Toxic's uh, website. And um, last time, you all, I shared beyondtoxics.org with you. I'm going to share it again right here so you can see some of the amazing work that the rest of the team does. And you can see some of the things that Mason does as we're talking about his work today. So something that I found was that something that you said, and I wanted to ask you exactly what you meant by that, because I thought it was a really sweet thing to say. And so you said you feel intimately tied to the world's precious ecosystems. What did you mean by that? I think there's a few things going on when I wrote that sentence. One, nature has always been a wonderful safe space for me. I have a famous saying with myself, Mason, a 30-minute walk is better than a 30-minute crisis. And I go out into the woods and I do what I need to do, whether that's like giving a tree a hug, 
talking to myself and figuring out where I'm at and processing my emotions. So nature's always been a wonderful safe space for me. I attribute that to Hood River. It's pretty much in the middle of a national park or the a national park equivalent. Mm-hmm. And so you're always five a five minute drive away from world-class trails, great ecosystems, and the silence and isolation that I sometimes need to process my thoughts. The second factor to that sentence is not only is it a safe space for me, but I have a lot of compassion and empathy for ecosystems and nature. And so I don't know where exactly that came from, but uh, whenever I am stressed out or I'm having a hard time, I sort of try and bittersweetly picture like where if I were right now in this place, like 2000 years ago before we had like transformed it, what would it look like? And so I sometimes like ground that way and feel a strong connection, even if I don't have a perfect image of what the ecosystem would have looked like. I mean, nature always pulls me into some of those, what what's the word, difficult to deal with emotions. Um, I think a prime example of that was during the Pacific Northwest heat dome um, back in 21. And I spent all five of those days next to the Hood River, which flows from Mount Hood's glacial waters, um, or the White Salmon, which flows from Mount Adams' glacial waters. And that was a hard day to deal with because while I was really excited for the respite and coolness that the waters offered me, I was tremendously anxious and full of grief because I am hyper aware that all of that extra water is melting because of a heat dome, because of climate change. And that is not something that I necessarily want for the ecosystems there. There's a lot of riparian zones uh, that depend, and riparian is when a river flows through an area and, and gives a reliable source of water, allowing for there to be a greener and more lush ecosystem in an area. So I know that those ecosystems are highly dependent on it. The salmon and fish are, but so is my entire town. Um, It's filled with horticulture and growing apples, pears, peaches, cherries. And not only are there farmers growing those, there are tourists coming from all over the world to see those farms. And if all that glacial water were to not be there, none of our town's life and culture would be there, not to mention all of the animals and plants that would be hurt in the process. So... That is a fantastic answer because it lets me really see why you said that. Like I, the way that you talked about it felt intimate. So thank you for going into depth because you can read things and, and imagine however it is that you want that somebody, how they said it. But to hear them explain it is a lot better for me because I'm curious. I'm always curious. So you go to U of O. Okay, you moved here to go to the University of Oregon. You're in school right now still, right? No, I actually graduated in June. You did. Well, congratulations, and I don't know that I knew that. So that's great. You graduated in June. You told me that you had this aha moment of people can actually make a career out of making maps. Like people can actually do that for a living. What gave you that aha moment? What made you say, I want to do this? Well, there's a few things that happened. One, um, 
AP Human Geography was my favorite class in high school. I would literally read the textbook for fun, and then I would ignore my teacher's lectures while staring at different thematic maps in order to just get an idea of what the world was like. Um, and I, I will have you know, I passed that class with excellent markings, even if I wasn't paying attention. So I kind of had that history of, wow, this is the one high school class I've ever felt enthusiastic and just really happy to be there and learning. And I don't even need the pressure of a teacher or a grade to enjoy that. And so I went off to college and I took a very similar intro to human geography course. And I went, oh, there's a whole field dedicated to this. (laughs) That aha moment. Yeah. And... I was like, okay, well, let's continue to check this out. And then eventually in spring, I was doing labs um, on GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems. It's a way of understanding the world and data through the lens of geography and space. And part of our assignment was to make a map of the data we had collected at the very end. And that was another aha moment for me because turns out, Someone has to make the map. There has to be a cartographer. And we tend to take maps as ground truths of reality. But the truth is, is that there is sort of a writer, if you will, deciding which important details need to be featured on this map, how to do it, and what's the most effective way to communicate that important information, and what does the audience not need to know. And is that what you do? That is what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love aha moments. So, like I said, I'm super jazzed that you're bringing your energy to the show today, and our paths do cross in certain instances quite a bit because we're both in air quality. So, we've got West Eugene where we hook up Springfield, and I have a very limited role in Coffin Butte and Covanta. So, do you want to tell me what Covanta is? Covanta Incinerators is a garbage incinerator located in Marion County just north of Salem, in a small unincorporated community called Brooks. And so Covanta takes all kinds of garbage and does just as they do and incinerate and burn it um, and produce a little bit of electricity from it. They do mainly municipal waste from your household, you know, whatever you put in your trash can, but they also do do some industrial waste from construction and manufacturing, as well as burning some medical waste from hospital facilities. And they turn all of this into smoke and ash. And when you are combusting hazardous chemicals, you have no idea what's gonna be created when you put two things together and put a ton of heat and energy into transforming those things. And all of that goes up into the little plume and comes out the top and slowly falls to the ground. You know, those heavy metals don't get diluted and they don't get pushed far away. They actually fall quite close to the facility around towns and schools that are within just a couple of blocks away. But there's also tons of other pollutants that are floating around there. That, you know, thank you for explaining that a little bit. I I did know what they push out. Covanta, how does that go along with Coffin Butte? So Coffin Butte is a landfill located north of Covallis around Adair Village. And it is a landfill for mainly Benson County, but it also services uh, a lot of the state of Oregon, as well as a few counties in Washington. Now, they also take municipal waste, and instead of burning it, they bury it. 
between layers of soil and ash. And this is where the key link comes in, mm-hmm. is sometimes Coffin Butte Landfill will take a layer of garbage and put soil or sometimes contaminated soil over it in order to keep the garbage and microplastics down and out of the wind. However, especially during the winter, mm-hmm. they use Covanta incinerator ash to tamp down the garbage. So they take toxic ash full of heavy metals and burnt garbage and layer garbage with it. And instead of having garbage blow, you have the ash with heavy metals being caught in the wind and blown. Not only that, but we've heard rumors that sometimes Coffin Butte Landfill takes the water leachate which is formed when rain falls, it goes into the mountain of garbage and it seeps through and goes to the bottom and it collects all sorts of wonderful things along the ways of all those garbage juice things. And then that leachate is really toxic and we don't want it in our water systems. So Coffin Butte Landfill takes it out and they do different things with it. They sometimes send it to a waste treatment facility that processes sewage. I would flag right there that waste treatment facilities are not meant to deal with leachate and only partially treat the garbage. Mm. They also sometimes send it to Covanta, where they incinerate it back into the air. Let's let's get into maps. Let's get in maps because you make the most beautiful maps and I want to know how maps play a role in air quality, pollution. How, how do maps play a role in that? Well, inherent to pollution is a question of where. You cannot look at pollution without knowing where it is first and where it's produced and where it travels to. And maps are the way that we visualize that and we create something that allows us to see a pattern on a piece of paper that would have to be witnessed um, in real life across, you know, a place that is bigger than your eyes can probably take in at once. Mm -hmm. And so we are always asking the question of, Where do people feel uh, pollution impacting them? The whole reason that Coffin Butte Landfill got started is because a neighborhood association, um, the Valley Neighbors for Environmental Quality and Safety, reported that they smelled something putrid in the air and they didn't know what it was and they felt it was unsafe to be outside because they didn't know what was in the air. And they went on Google Maps and sure enough saw that they lived right next to a landfill. And they looked at the way that the mountain ridges formed. And they went, hang on a second. Our little mountain ridges around us form a little bowl, a partial bowl with an open side. And that bowl fills with wind and air that's funneled from Coffin Butte Landfill into the bowl where it becomes trapped. And then that's why they smell high amounts of methane, hydrogen sulfide, there might be microplastics in the air, particulate matter, things that they're worried might impact their health. And by visualizing this on a map, we can see exactly how this pattern occurs. We can also decide, like we're doing, where do we want to potentially test the air quality based on this data and based on how the people, how, where, and when people are reporting that they smell these things. Okay, wow. So, some nastiness is getting trapped in a little bowl and everybody's smelling it. 
with that nasty everything that's coming out. Does some of that stuff cause cancer? I I would think so, for sure. Heavy metals, we, we know, cause cancer from exposure. If you're laying Covanta ash with heavy metals in it, the wind is going to blow some of those, and that is going to land in people's yards. If it lands in their yards, it's likely to stay there for maybe a hot minute, unless we have some really strong wind, but it can get stuck in the soil, so then when people are gardening, they're inadvertently exposing themselves to such. One of my questions I've really wanted to look into is what does chronic exposure to methane look like? Methane counts um, around Coffin Butte landfill are way higher than here in Eugene. And so it makes me wonder, what does chronic exposure to methane do to the human body? And these are the pollutants that we are able to measure with the um, equipment that we have. But I, I would love to know what the EPA is able to measure or organizations with more resources would be able to find. And so I think there's a tremendous risk for human health, both acute in the sense of like asthma or respiratory tract illness, um, or even, you know, sometimes these contribute to strokes and heart disease. But there's also what happens when there's a chronic exposure, and, and that frequently takes the form of cancer. That just gave me chills. I want to talk about one of the amazing maps that you've made that is going to potentially help a whole community and i'm talking about the public health overlay zone i keep on talking about the public health overlay zone and i will continue to talk about the public health overlay zone until it is in zone the public health overlay zone like i said before in, in other episodes it offers a um, additional buffer between people and industrial facilities. People meaning uh, schools, parks, churches, homes, etc. People. So what we want to do is we want to have this in place so that we can offer that buffer zone. So what has happened in Mason's involvement in this, besides being fantastic, is that he has made a wonderful map to describe where we need to have this public health overlay zone. It will also stop potential bad actors. That means people that are trying to come into the community and cause some ruckus like J.H. Baxter did. We don't want those facilities coming in to the community. And the public health overlay zone will help stop some of those potential bad actors and save lives. So, Mason... Well, first of all, I want to say that if this policy was in place everywhere, the situation that I talked to you about last time in Cashmere Gardens would not have happened. All those people out there would not be sick. They would not have been living right next to a rail yard like that for decades if we had something like this in place. So can you tell me how you came about making that map? Well, it all started one day, Zach Mulholland, who is a coworker of ours, approached me and said, Mason, do you think you can make a buffer around all residential zones in Eugene that exist within the quarter mile of industrial areas? And I said, yes, I can. <laughs> and he goes, well, could you also make it for various different sizes so we can kind of get an idea of like how much industrial land is within a quarter mile of people's houses? Mm-hmm. And I went, sure. And two weeks later, I came with a set of four maps, and we looked at various distances over which um, industrial zone would be covered. And 
we talked about, okay, you know, which one of these buffers seem big enough? How can we offer people the most protection um, from this? I'm going to take a moment and say a buffer is a set distance mm -hmm. between um, a house and an industrial building that would be allowed. And so we went ahead and said, it should be at least a quarter mile. And the reason why we decided on a quarter mile is because there's a similar-ish policy in Portland that says that you cannot build industrial zones within a quarter mile of housing without um, a series of precautions. And we decided that that seemed realistic to us and that would offer meaningful protection. And so in order to determine the distance, we didn't need to visualize it and look at it because we kind of floated around different distances. Is 400 feet enough? And it turns out 400 feet in terms of J.H. Baxter, J.H. Mm -hmm. Baxter wouldn't have been even included because 400 feet doesn't even make it to the other side of the street from the houses located right across from them. And so that's how we decided a quarter mile is substantial enough that it would, it would put a significant distance between people living in houses, going to school, going to parks, and um, industrial facilities operating and putting out um, toxic chemicals into the air. Okay, well, I think that that's awesome. So where do we want this public health overlay to, to be. I know that we have talked a lot with city councilors and, and such about this public health overlay zone, but where where is it that we ideally would want it to be? Well, in West Eugene, and there's a few reasons for that. West Eugene is what we would call a sacrifice zone, which is when a city or a form of government decides that a specific region will hold a lot of chronic pollution in it. And um, when we say sacrifice, we're referring to public health. People's public health is being sacrificed for the sake of industrial polluters. This pattern started in the 1920s. We can look at um, wood treatment facilities being placed right next to houses. And it continued on through the 1940s and 50s when J.H. Baxter was constructed not two blocks south of a ton of housing and it continued through the 70s and 80s when that housing was continually expanded up closer to J.H. Baxter and more facilities were added. And through even today, we're constructing high-density apartments right next to computer chip manufacturers. So this pattern has existed for a long time, and it seems like current decision-making is fueling this pattern of creating a sacrifice zone. So we wanted to create a piece of legislation and a set of rules that would not even allow the city to make this decision to begin with. And we are primarily locating that in West Eugene. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see it extended to the rest of the city, perhaps. But we're locating it in West Eugene because 80% of industrial zoning is in that area. If you want to imagine a greater than sign, like you see in math, mm -hmm. it makes that little like triangle shape. Mm -hmm. There is a triangle shape of industrial pollution in West Eugene following the Highway 99 corridor and the West 11th corridor. Mm -hmm. And there is housing right in the center of that greater sign and on the outside of it. So there is this heavy commingling of incompatible land uses. And the public health overlay zone says we cannot continue that pattern and it is illegal to continue that pattern. Yeah, because it's not that big of an ask. No. It's really not. We deserve to have a safe environment, clean air, water, soil where we live. That's a basic thing, and we all have the right to it. 
So that leads me into how do you feel knowing that the maps that you made could potentially save lives, could potentially have made it so that my child didn't, doesn't get sick? How does that make you feel? Very reverent. <laughs> um, I think about a lot the ethics of map making, right? I It is up to me to make the decision of what is important to see and what is not. And to have that role in communicating that information to city councilors and city staff and people in power. So I, I take the job very seriously mm-hmm. and very reverently and I, I hope for the best and I just put in as much work as I can to hopefully make things work. So do you feel like your connection with the world's precious ecosystem prepared you for this type of work? Like, did you go into life thinking, I'm going to work at a nonprofit and I'm going to make maps that are going to save lives? No, I sort of just like stumble into these things. Um, I had no idea I was going to make maps or be in geography. The reason why I was pulled towards it is because I'm focused on a million different things. I I don't like, like a historian, I don't want to just focus on history. Like a political scientist, I don't want to just focus on politics. But geography is sort of this interdisciplinary lens to pull all of those things together and understand how they impact our spatial layout and, and what the world looks like around us and how it came to be that thing. So I was enthusiastic because I came from Hood River and I had noticed several different things going on. I noticed there were environmental issues. I noticed there were political issues. I noticed there was a lot of systemic racism. I noticed there was a lot of economic things going on. And geography gave me a spine through which to weave everything through. And so while I really enjoyed that and I I loved what I studied, boy, did I have no idea what I was going to do after college. And I was completely weaning it. And I had had a couple of wonderful professors who I had worked with at some point. And my predecessor at Beyond Toxics happened to email them and went, hey, do you know of any like cool candidates that could potentially, you know, hop in in this role and um, figure out how to do GIS in this environment? And I received that email I like, of course, you can use mapping for these purposes. But for me, the idea of being able to get a job doing it was kind of out of my realm of imagination. And so I showed up to the interview and I guess the rest is history. So I'm still a little bit like shocked that I get to do this work and I get to apply this skill set in this specific environment. And I feel really, in a way, lucky to do it because I've always passionately believed in those things. And the fact that I can take my work and my skill set and apply it to that was surprising for me and not something I would have ever thought of. And I still, every time I get a new project or a new assignment, I'm like, whoa, I got to think about this. I like... I'd love to sit in these environments and and to do this work for, again, this company as opposed to, like, let's say an oil and a gas company or, you know, anyone else because, yeah. Well, I mean, it's marvelous to work with Beyond Toxics, isn't it? We get to do what we love and we get paid for it (laughs) and we get to work with an awesome group of people. Yeah. So do do you take it personally? Like, when polluters are bad actors, do you feel like you 
take it personally because of your strong connection to the environment? Well, I don't take it personally in the sense that I know they aren't like, this is going to irritate Mason. They're not thinking of me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> when they do this, so it's not personal. <laughs> but I do, um, back to my point earlier about talking about the heat dome and the glaciers uh, melting, I feel the grief. I, I I feel right that that impact and that powerlessness and that uncertainty for the future and the precarity on which you know my town or West Eugene sits in those spaces. So I don't take it personally, but I I grieve, I I cry, I get angry because. Man, I I don't know how people do it. I don't know how people have a conscience and and sit down and make these decisions uh, and you know in whatever ways deny um, their very obvious and real impacts um, or or say that they're not uh, relevant or important and instead front profits or money or or things like that. So I don't I don't take it personally, but at the same time I I find it very hard to be compassionate and empathetic for those actors. Yeah. Yeah. I take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> I take it very personally. Um so does the level of pollution have anything to do with how you make these maps? Like the process of the maps, you go in, we're like, "Mason, this place looks like wild and crazy over here. Does that level of pollution determine how you make that map?" Mm. Well, the first step in making a map is does the data exist? Mm -hmm. And so one of my first, and and unfortunately, as turns out, people uh, don't always collect data on health impacts and um, industrial pollution and things like that. So does it dictate how I make the map? kind of right sometimes there is is very obvious data and information i can use to support a case or or portray pollution one of the things we're doing with coffin butte landfill is creating that data so we have an air quality monitoring device it goes out there it records the ambient air temperatures and just yesterday i spent or not air temperatures air quality Mm -hmm. and just yesterday i spent the whole day symbolizing methane measurements Um, carbon dioxide measurements, the bigger the circle is, the more carbon dioxide was there. So in that case, I'm I'm very able to acutely make a map that is directly representing um, pollution. However, you know, in the case of other areas, we're not always directly able to do that. And one of the big, one of my big roles and areas where I work together with people on Beyond Toxics is going out and collecting and creating that data because that brings visibility to the community's Mm -hmm. uh, life and the way that industrial pollution has affected them. We can do this by uh, looking at health impacts and where those health impacts exist in relation to a facility. That's how J.H. Baxter got shut down. That was before I started working there, but someone took a map and was able to verify that there are a ton of cancer cases surrounding this one facility and statistically um, there are more cancer cases than in, you know, other uh, dissimilar environments. And from that, we are able to go, well, clearly there's a source of industrial pollution causing these cancer cases, right? And so in that case, someone was able to collect all that data, symbolize it, and put it all together on a map. 
but that's not always possible. And so sometimes step one is going about and creating that data and finding the best way to record it, measure it, uh, write it down, and, and then sort of make the map from there. So it doesn't really answer your question. No, it's a, it, got, it's it, got, it. it got to it. That's a hard question. So let's say we're out in the field, out in West Eugene. We're successful at getting the FAS in place, public health overlay zone folks. How does that make you feel? Besides being proud, you feel accomplished. How do you feel when we're standing out there and we're looking at this apartment complex that isn't anywhere near any facilities and you know that your maps helped do that? How does that make you feel? Well, it means that I can finally stop holding my breath and feel oh, relief. Love it, <laughs> love it when it circles back. Yay. Nice. So do you feel like working with the public health overlay zone maps and all that, do you feel like that helped quench some of your curiosity a little bit? In terms of? Of just pollution and maps and and where are you going to do these maps? Do you, do you feel like that has helped quench just a little bit of that, that curiosity? Yeah, it's been super fulfilling and interesting for me to work with that specific type of data and, and figure out how we can have real world um, impacts on public health and uh, prevent, you know, cancer and other forms of disease. And it's amazing to me. It quenches a bit of my curiosity and it does certainly make me wonder slash wish where more of that work is occurring um, and going on out there. And I think one of the most exciting things about a public health overlay zone for me would mean is it's not often that a city or a government enshrines public health priorities into other areas of governance outside of public health itself, right? We have a public health office for the state of Oregon, but they don't work with like zoning and land use regulations. So to see those priorities extended to areas where they're not traditionally noticed or allowed is is what makes me the most excited because man like not only am I happy that West Eugene is impacted in this way but I just hope that you know some other nonprofit out there in some other environment um, sees what we did and, and knows that it's possible and and you know sees the you know the steps that it takes to get there. do you see yourself in five years? Where's Mason in five years? Um, I Are you married? Are you married in five years? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm in my early 20s. I'm still figuring out a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of trial and error and figuring out what works, what do I like, what don't I like. Um, my guess is I am still going to be just as passionate and angry and um, excited about environmental justice and making sure that that work happens, whether it's um, in the capacity of a nonprofit and working in industrial pollution, or if it's in academia, working on the way we talk about history and racism and how it's built into that, or... Uh, at a journalism company um, making maps about climate change or other, you know, community issues. 
I can imagine it being any of that. I can tell you it will not be an oil and gas company <laughs> or J.H. Baxter. Well, you know what? You have a unique skill set, and I think that it brings a lot to the team. You know, like, I don't know how to make a map. I, I you know, so I, I like the skill set that you bring to the team. So what kind of advice would you give younger fo- folks out there that, might want to do what you do they're like you know what i think i might want to go to school for ArcGIS. like what what would you say to a 17 year old just about to graduate and wants to go into this field i would say do it it is so much fun there are so many different avenues that you can explore in it i really like thinking about more the qualitative like human experience of areas and i like to kind of map from that more perspective but There are areas where you could do coding, um, more hardcore like quantitative analysis and looking at numbers and statistics and things like that. The thing I love most about geography and its interdisciplinary nature is that it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You you can't not be looking at things through a geographical lens. Uh, A lot of professors will joke around and say the only thing more interdisciplinary than literature is geography because literature there's all forms of literature there's you know everything from restaurant menu items to journals to books right and there's all types of things to analyze but beyond that space is is everywhere and geography is everywhere and if your dream job of geography doesn't exist yet go and find it you know this position started out for me as is very very minimal and very part time and it just keeps growing and expanding and this skill set can be used for a variety of purposes the key is is to try and help others see the importance of it that's wonderful so if they said so mason is it fun if they said is it fun i'd say that depends on who you are as a person I, I love it, and, and for the following reasons. There's a little bit of scientific exactitude to it, right? Like, I am crunching numbers, and I'm figuring out how to present those numbers. But then there's a lot of actually artistic elements that go with that. Which colors display this information the best? Where and at what scale do I display this information? We've talked about this a lot, you know, in reference to other things. The more aesthetic something is the more enthusiastic an audience member is going to be to take it in and digest it and understand it. And so uh, there's a scientific regarity to it. There's a way you do things, but then there's also a lot of room to maneuver and let artistic expression speak for itself. So I find the intersection of those two very fulfilling and just eternally interesting. And fun. And fun. (laughs) Well, things have to be interesting for me for them to be fun. Like, I have to be investigating, kind of exploring, experimenting, and all of that to me is encompassed in the word interesting. Love it, love it, love it. Mason, thank you so much for taking the time to laugh and to chat with me. Um, I would also like to say, there you have it, folks. Maps, why we need them how important they are for helping keep us safe and understand where there could be pollution. And we have Mason to do that. So thank you for listening to Why We Do the Work. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me, Archery.